there's still a, a few high schoolers here. That's good. I, you know, they can read the outlines too, and I thought they might decide, well, there's nothing for me here today. I'm neither a husband nor a wife. Some of you guys probably, maybe not members of the He-Man and Woman Haters Club. Again, that's a geezer thing. Nobody remembers the He-Man Woman Haters Club, but uh, on the old Little Rascals or Our Gang, variously named. Um, but uh, I hope that you'll see in these uh, messages today that what makes a good husband and a good wife are fundamentally what makes a, a faithful Christian. Uh, special spheres of application, but no great magic. Um, again, like we were talking about yesterday, being conformed to the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, we laid those foundational uh, stones in the Great Commission and the Lordship of Christ, His headship over everything, and uh, what that means then for us. We need to relate all that we do in every sphere of life to His Lordship, learning to observe whatever He has commanded us, um, training ourselves in those habits of mind and heart that will enable us to live as kingdom people, advancing His kingdom and His righteousness, recognizing that the Spirit of God is remaking us into the image and likeness of God in Jesus Christ, that His true humanity, His perfect humanity, uh, both in His humiliation and then in His exaltation, provide again the pattern for where we're going. As he is now, we will one day be. And as he was in his suffering and humiliation, so we in our present experience suffer those same kinds of things. Again, taking nothing away from the uniqueness, the once-for-all substitutionary work of Christ, but then also recognizing the continuity between what he did in that regard and what he calls us to do in imitation of him. So that was the connection in my mind between the morning talks and the evening talks, and that, that theme will recur again today. Um, but today we're going to address the, the family relationships and roles of men as husbands, new men as husbands, and new women as wives, and... Uh, I trust this will be a blessing to us again. Let's uh, just pray once more for our study. Our Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us as our representative substitute. And we thank you for what Christ is doing in us from his resurrected glory through the agent of the Holy Spirit, transforming us into his image from glory to glory uh, as we behold him as he's revealed to us in scripture. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we think about what your word is to us and then set ourselves to that cheerful, loving, meek dependence and following of you, that you would help us to uh, grow day by day in in grace. And, and Lord, even uh, this morning, it came to mind in a conversation that, that we can hear your word and we'll be convicted. There'll be some pinches, but we may also look back at 
years past and thank you profoundly for the growth that you have brought in us uh, from younger years as husbands and, and younger years as wives and the things that we have learned, sometimes difficult lessons, but lessons nevertheless that you have faithfully taught us. And, and we thank you that we may well be more like Christ. We should be more like Christ today than we have been in the past. And so encourage us as well as stretch and challenge us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we'll start with the gentleman. Um, Not so much because of the biblical priority, although there is that, but I found over the years that the ladies uh, like to get the husbands straightened out first before they have to face the music themselves. Uh, So we might as well get at that. But just so you know, ladies, your hour is coming but is not yet. What does the Lord want from us who are new men as we address our relationship and roles as husbands? What does our Lord require of men as husbands? What does the word of the king in Scripture say? Now here again, there's a wealth of things that we could talk about Um, a vast amount of how-tos, and those are not unimportant. But as I said, I I would like to concentrate more on the why, Uh, thinking of our triangle again. Oftentimes we've got lots of roadmap information. We know what we should do, but we often fail in terms of motivation uh, or in terms of direction, orientation, living our lives with a specific direction toward the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So I'm only going to highlight a few things this morning, and again, probably nothing you haven't heard before unless you're brand new to the faith or to the uh, teaching of the scriptures concerning family matters, but nevertheless um, worth repeating because uh, oftentimes these ideas that are familiar enough to us Uh, are ignored in our practice as Christian men. Again, you may have a stack of books on being a good husband, and there are some good ones out there. Um, But buying them is one thing. Reading them and doing them, as I said yesterday, is something else. So we might as well dive right into that central passage in Ephesians where we go over and over and over again when we think about role relationships between husbands and wives. And that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. We'll pick up the ladies section in the next hour, but this morning let's begin at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In a parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 19, Paul makes it much, much briefer. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Bible tells us that the essence of our original sin boils down to self-worship. Exchanging the worship and service of the Creator for the worship of the creature, and our favorite creature is me. And so, self-worship is the heart of our idolatry. And really, idolatry is simply trying to make something out there in my own image that I can then worship and serve. And we can use all kinds of raw material to make our idols, but in the end, it is a matter of self-worship. The original temptation in Genesis 3-5 was, you will be as gods. You don't have to act like creatures. You will be as gods. And so we declare, I will worship and serve myself rather than my Creator. We talk about selfishness, and selfishness is on the way to self-worship, but it's the not, not the same thing. Uh, many people will admit within a marriage relationship or other relationships, yes, I was selfish. I thought about myself over the interests of the other person in the relationship. And, and that's sin, and that needs to be corrected. But it's really this self-worship. I loved myself more than God, and that's why I then didn't behave in the relationship the way I should have. Now, you can see right on the surface of it that this raises one of the central questions as we deal with our marital relationships. How can two self-worshipping beings, a man and a woman, enter successfully into a relationship, marriage, which is at its very heart a call to self-forgetting and other-serving? At the heart of marriage is self-sacrifice, And you have two people who stand up there before the minister and smilingly say, I'll sacrifice myself for you, my husband or my wife, when buried deep in their heart of hearts is this instinct to worship and serve myself rather than the other. Can you imagine any enterprise so clearly doomed from the start? I mean, that recognition makes me always want to address that in the message of a wedding ceremony, but it sounds like such a downer to, to say to the new couple, you know, you got about one chance in a million of making this work. <laughs> but it's really that way. Apart from absolute, utter, sustained dependence upon God 
in Jesus Christ working through the Spirit. We just don't have a chance in the world. Um, now, when you think about it, most men, most men and women get married for essentially self-serving reasons. Uh, I sometimes ask young couples in premarital counseling, you know, why do you want to marry this guy? Why do you want to marry this girl? And, and more often than not, I get some answer that says how that person makes me feel. And so I give them the old buzzer. <clears throat> Did you hear what you just said? You want to marry that person for what that person is going to do for you? And so we have a little talk about what marriage really is all about. Even when we pay lip service to wanting to be for the other and do for the other, oftentimes that's just window dressing. It's just saying what we know the preacher wants to hear when we're trying to get married. Why would women then, for example, so often complain and, and often very truly that there's such a change that has come over their would-be knight in shining armor not so very long after the marriage and the honeymoon. I mean, before they were so attentive. They were so considerate. They were so interested in me. So obviously affectionate. But then afterwards, they seemed to lose interest. It's like they won the prize. They carried her back to the cave. And now they're on to other things. That job is done. What's next on my agenda? And it's true. It happens. Men, your calling as a husband is a very specific expression of the more general call in Christ to die to yourself. That you might live unto God by living unto your wife. Jesus calls us to, and we talked about that on Monday night, imitate him in his cross-bearing. Now again, I, I mentioned that some guys think their wife is the cross they have to bear. <laughs> Got the old ball and chain here, you know. There's only one reason to carry a cross. It's so that you can be nailed to it and die. And so when we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we're called to self-surrender, self-sacrifice, to dying, and that cuts right at the taproot of who we are fallen in Adam. The antidote to the worship and service of the creature rather than the Creator is cross-bearing. It's dying as disciples of Jesus Christ. So again, there's no great trick to being a good husband if you've mastered what it's all about to be a Christian. The problem is, many of us men don't even begin to understand what cross-bearing and dying to self is all about until we get married and find it so difficult to serve our wives in a self-denying, self-sacrificing way. And you don't get the hang of it after two years or five years or ten years just because you put time in. It requires the most profound working of the Spirit of God in our lives. 
So that's the word of the Lord. You want to know what the resurrected Jesus expects of you as men? It is to take up your cross and follow him in the service of your wife as a husband, dying every single day to that recurrent instinct. Just once, for a few minutes, can I be God again? No, no, never. And that sets up the fundamental heart struggle and life struggle in the life of a Christian man, a new creature that's called into the role and relationship of a husband. Specifically, we, the example of Jesus' own self-sacrificing devotion for the sake of his church is set before us, because that's what Paul says there in Ephesians 5. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that she might be more holy in a sense at his expense. But oftentimes, even pious husbands run far, far ahead because they are not as concerned about the growth of their wives. I remember Sherry telling me while I was in seminary, you know, you're learning all this stuff in seminary. And I'm not even getting crumbs that fall from the table. You don't have anything to say to me about what you're learning and how you're growing. And sadly, that wasn't the first time that I failed to work for the sanctification of my wife. But also he wants to present the church to him in, in splendor without glory and wrinkle and spot. That concern that our wives be brought under our leadership to the fullness of the glory that they have in Christ for the realization of their potential. But again, there are a lot of men who want to make sure that their wives stay in their place, under the thumb. I will tell you what I think you ought to be. Rather than learning what Christ would have that woman become and then becoming the facilitator for her growth. So that instead of, as many women feel, they somehow missed out because they were married. A wife can come to the end of her married life and say, I never would have become what I have become if it were not for my husband's love and his sacrifice to bring me to my glory and to my splendor. Marriage, men, is a call to that kind of service. But if you're preoccupied with you and your interests and your responsibilities and your desires and your plans, you're never going to be the kind of husband that God wants you to be. Peter says to husbands in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I really appreciate the way Lou Parolo applies this passage when he talks about, you know, so many things that we buy has an instruction manual. How to assemble it, how to get it going, how to maintain it, how to make it properly function. And, and so, 
you know, we, we try to read the book, and, you know, I always hate it when it says, read this book all the way through before you do one thing. I want to turn it on and see if it works. So I'm impatient with instruction manuals, but we need them. And sometimes when there's a repair or some troubleshooting, we need to, to look back at that manual. And Parolo says, your wife comes with that kind of an instruction manual as well. But it's buried deep down in her heart. And a godly man, a wise man, spends a lifetime drawing that out, learning about her with a view to bringing her to her full function as a woman, particularly as a woman of God. I think of Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes in a woman's heart is like deep water, but a husband of understanding draws it out. That's the idea, as Parolo says that. Again, this is probably geezer stuff, but maybe some of you saw the movie version. I guess it was there on Broadway, but I've never been to a Broadway play in my whole life, at least not on Broadway. But they made a musical of Camelot, the story of King Arthur, and there's one place in there where the king is so perplexed and he's so angry at Merlin because Merlin was supposed to have taught him about everything but he doesn't understand Guinevere. He doesn't understand what makes her tick, and he's so frustrated, and he has no answer. Now, in the end, it's lovely. He sings that the answer is to love her. Sad thing is, he doesn't know what that love really looks like. So I was saying yesterday, you really can boil it all down to love if you understand what love is as God explains it and as Jesus exemplifies it for us. Oftentimes we fixate on this language of the weaker vessel. In what sense is my wife weaker than me? And are women weaker than men? And what's all that all about? But again, Parolo is helpful when he says, it's not so much what she is as how you treat her. Imagine a, a priceless vase, so delicate that you want to treat it in such a way that it will never be harmed, never chipped, certainly never broken, showing honor to the woman as you would a delicate, weak vessel. She's to be valued. She's to be cherished. She's to be protected and to be helped, and not despised, not taken for granted, not ignored, not victimized. She is, after all, with you, a fellow heir of the grace of life. All that you put your hope in as a man in Christ, that's her portion as well, and it is your responsibility to help her to the full enjoyment of that. Now, this is where you say, guys, oh, nuts. Really? Couldn't we lower the bar somehow? Couldn't we make this more realistic? Can't we make it doable? No, it's not doable. It's beyond what any sinful man is capable of doing. And that's why marriage humbles us. By design, it humbles us. Remember that passage again in Deuteronomy chapter 8? God took 
Israel through the wilderness to humble them and to make them hungry so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And marriage is like that kind of a test designed to humble you men, to make you hungry so that you will depend all the more with every passing day upon the supply of God. Both His Word, the words that proceed from the mouth of God in Holy Scripture, but also the supply of the Holy Spirit Himself. The resources that we need can be found only in the spirit of the risen Christ. To live under the lordship of Christ as husbands then means that we must depend, we must draw our life and strength from the spirit of the Lord working within us. A man who begins to see the the magnitude of the calling and the responsibility that he has as a husband must cry out with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Who can do this job? We spoke earlier about Jesus' call to self-denial, to cross-bearing, that we must deny, we must die to ourselves so that we may live to God, so that we may serve our wives as a a Christ-imitating husband. And one can do that only by the Spirit. Remind you again of, of what Paul says about life in the Spirit In Romans chapter 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now that has a general application, but a godly husband is going to feel that deadness in himself over and over and over again when faced with the responsibility. And then we look to the one who raises the dead, who gives life from the dead. And whatever the task, whatever the responsibility within the marriage, that's where the life comes from. Self-conscious dependence upon the working of the Spirit. Similarly, in Colossians 3, Paul urges us as those who have been raised with Christ to seek those things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, to set our minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. He commands us to put to death that which is earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. To set aside the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the obscene talk, and and just picture that as it comes to expression in a marital relationship. The anger, the wrath, the vengefulness, the malice, the slander as you speak of a husband or a wife to others. Even the obscene talk, the killing with the tongue that becomes sadly part of marital life when things go wrong. And then, conversely, to put on who we are in Christ, the new man, being renewed in the image of our Creator. And yet I wonder, and again, I've been 
pastoring other men and trying to figure myself out for 40 plus years now in, in ministry and and you know we just don't seem to be able to make the transfer of these general applications to how do we relate to our wife day by day men come and they've got complaints about this and that and and they haven't even begun even as Christians to to bring these things together Men rely so much on their own strength, and therefore we quench and resist and grieve the Holy Spirit, particularly in our role as husbands. And yet, if we were honest, there's no place where we're more clueless often than as we enter into a marriage relationship. We trust too much in nature in the flesh rather than in the Spirit of God. It's interesting sometimes when marriages collapse and husbands and wives are estranged, maybe even separated, contemplating divorce, or where there's been some devastating unfaithfulness within the relationship. But in the mercy of God, they're not completely gone, and so finally, They come to talk to the pastor, and when I've had those occasions to to talk to couples who really on some level want this marriage to succeed, they want to put it back together again, then they begin to be self-conscious about things that they claim to believe before, but they've just been coasting. You know, the inertia of, of love and courtship and, and romance. And, and they just think that's going to carry them on like a, like a Waimea Bay wave. And, and, it, and it really doesn't work very long. And, and now they have to rebuild, and you can't rebuild without working. And it's just wonderful to see then God bless us when we get serious about building a relationship that will last. And more than once, I've had men testify that their relationship with their wife and the things that are now in place for the future are way better than they had ever been in the marriage up to that point. And I think that just points up again that we rely on the flesh. Even though Jesus says the flesh profits nothing, rather than becoming deliberate, self-conscious, intentional about applying the principles of discipleship to our particular role as husbands. Some of them thought their wife was the problem before. And the great evidence of their new enlightenment is they realize that now they're the problem and that God will work the solution in them, making them a Christ-like husband Living under the lordship of Christ as husbands means learning from and, in our own turn, teaching other new men how to fulfill this most important calling. Here we're thinking again of the corporate dimension. How does God build us together as a larger family of faith into effective leaders of our own homes and our own families? We men don't get much help um, these days, particularly from our culture, about how to be a godly husband. Perhaps our father's generation or our grandfather's generation at least learned in the common grace of God some things about 
promise keeping, you know, my word is my bond. I'll stick with this even though it's gotten difficult. Or some kind of self-sacrifice. But today, you young men haven't got a chance if you're looking for help from the culture. Can you think in any of the popular culture of a role model of a faithful husband? I mean, let's leave explicit Christian faith out of the picture for a moment. Even in terms of common grace, is there anybody out there that you could say, well, at least I've seen on TV nothing. The modern family doesn't have a place in it for a responsible Christian husband. And some of us didn't get much help from our upbringing either. Some of you didn't have dads at home. You didn't have a father who was a husband who was showing you with more or less self-consciousness how to treat a woman. Some of you actually learned the opposite. You learned some irresponsibility from your dads. You saw how a man could humiliate a woman, how he could push her buttons and provoke her into an argument and then go off on her. So we really need help, and we can't find it anywhere else than within the community of faith, within the the fellowship of that new humanity that Christ is forming. We're told in the New Testament, as you well know, that elders in particular are to be exemplary. They're not to lord it over the flock, but lead them by example. And so when we as husbands look around for examples of how to do this and how to do it well, the natural place to look would be to our ruling elders and our pastors. They are to show us in public and private how to live the Christian life. And so elders are supposed to be the husband of one wife. They are to be, as one writer put it, one-woman men, or enthusiastically married. Not just married, but glad to be married, beating the drum for marriage, when so many are ready to abandon the institution completely so that we can catch that enthusiasm. I mean, I have to say, working on the edges of the the unbelieving world, and then seeing how marriages are, are so, so... I sometimes think, man, is it worth it to try to put the effort in? And then you see somebody who really likes being married, not because they got married last week, but because they like being married 10 years down the line, 15, 20 years down the line. And what did I see on the OPC website the other day? G.I. Williamson and his wife celebrated, what was their anniversaries this last one? I mean, they're, it was in the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, they've been married forever. <laughs> you know, we overuse the word hero. But someone who can make a marriage sing for 80 years, that's not just a prodigy of providence to live that long together. But praise God, that's what can happen. So we need elders that are enthusiastically married as they tick off 
decades of marriage and they continue by their life to commend it to us. And you men who are husbands ought to imitate their examples. There again, that theme. You watch, you listen, and you imitate. That's the way we learn. We seek advice and instruction, or ought to. Now, I guess this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Some of your elders haven't always been exemplary husbands. They've learned, maybe even during the time that they have been elders, to become better husbands, more faithful, more Consistent. I was talking to someone just a couple of weeks ago who was sort of making the, the, the comment, and I think it's pervasive, you know, you see a happy marriage or a happy family, and you just think, these people must have always been happy, and I'm not like them. They, they've just got it all together. And this person, it was dawning on them that maybe every happy family has its tragedies and its struggles and its difficulties, and maybe there's something to be learned from that. So you guys need to pick the brains of not only your elders, but their wives to to learn all that you can, to connect with what you see in them so that you might learn the skills and the instincts of being a godly husband. Because some of them have learn the hard way, and can teach you a lot if you ask them. And don't be put off by what appears to be so different from your situation because they don't have problems, and you're having problems. Often men find it easy enough to criticize and complain about their wives, especially behind their backs to other men, but often they're much less free to talk about their own failures as husbands, to admit their own bad attitudes, bad behaviors, their own near-tragic mistakes, and to magnify the grace of a healing God and a restoring spirit. So we need to uh, overcome this conspiracy of silence among us and talk more candidly as men about how to be godly husbands. Some men don't want to fix their problems. They want to escape them, and so they bury themselves in their their work, try to leave the problems at home until often it's too far gone. And then afterward, like Esau, they may seek the lost blessing with tears, but it's too late. Christian men in the fellowship of the body of Christ, need to become proactive in learning and practicing how to live under the lordship of Christ in this all-important role. And I would say to you men who are husbands whose sons are now approaching manhood, are you in turn speaking to them about your own experience as a husband? You know, it's, it's... and we've, we've had this experience, all of us, I'm sure, you know, there, I mean, some of our parents, I suppose, everything hung out, and so you saw everything, and you heard everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. My parents had arguments, 
but they took it off stage most of the time. And, and it wasn't until my mom was gone, and, and my dad still then never said very much about it, but I would get hints here and there about what made them the kind of couple they were. And, and they, were, they were good parents, and they, they had a, I mean, they, they got their years in until my mom died. She, they were faithful to one another, but I never was taken in to the circle where I might learn from my dad. Except I do remember he said, you know, if both the husband and the wife go more than halfway, they'll meet somewhere. It's not in the Bible. <clears throat> but I have practiced that a few times, and it does work. And I've advised others. But of course, it's more than going halfway, as we've talked about. It is laying down your life. You have to go all the way, whether your wife comes the other direction or not. That's the calling that Christ has given us. And you know, this idea of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that really begins in the family, and it begins in our relationships as husbands as wives, husband and wives as well. You know, we hear all this hand-wringing these days about the destruction of the American family, and certainly the collapse is becoming more and more accelerated and dramatic all the time. But who do we really blame for that? Who do you think is responsible for the death of the American family? Is it really the homosexuals that have killed marriage? Or have we been killing it for generations by our neglect of being godly husbands and wives? There's a lot of ignorant, foolish, self-worshipping husbands out there, and they have chopped and chopped and chopped at the root of marriage for generations. So if somebody later comes along and gives the tree the last little push, who's really to blame? Conversely, where's the Reformation and the revival going to come from? It's not going to come from the world. It's not going to come from a Supreme Court action. It's going to come from a community like this and others like it where we men begin to take responsibility under Christ for being the kind of men, the kind of husbands that we ought to be. The kingdom of God is the renewal of of all human institutions, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. And now He is about remaking not only individuals, but human institutions, especially an institution like the family, one of God's creation ordinances. Jesus Christ came to renew your marriage by renewing you men in the relationship and the role of a husband. The resources are all there for you in God's Word and in His personal presence through the Holy Spirit. The question is, are you willing to engage? Are you prepared for the work? We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, your will be done in my family, your will be done in my leadership of my wife and my children. We, we pray that, but, but what are we prepared to do? Remember that great scene in The Untouchables when the Sean Connery character is at Mallory, meeting with young Elliot Ness, 
They're there in the church not to pray, but to have a heart-to-heart talk. Elliot Ness is so un- upset about the, the criminal activity. And, uh, and Al Capone seems to be able to go and do whatever he wants to do. And, and Sean Connery asked, and I'm not even going to try his accent because uh, I don't do the Scottish brogue. My people are English, sad to say. But he asks Mr. Ness, what are you prepared to do? We pray. What, men, Mr. Ness, are you prepared to do? Marriage is work. It's a wonderful work. But it needs to be addressed, like I said to the children last night, in imitation of Jesus the working man. Because, you see, the greatest husband in the history of the world was not married, at least not as we think about it. And yet he gave himself up for his church. And we're still enjoying the benefits of our heavenly husband's relationship to us. And he calls you and me to, an, to imitate him in his lifetime, his eternal lifetime of self-forgetting, self-sacrificing service to his bride. And not just when your bride is easily led, not just when she's responsive, <gasps> my, my husband, I love my husband, or appreciative, but when she acts like we do as the church, thoughtless, indifferent, hostile, even to be loved in that context. That's the call that God has for us as Christian men. May He give us grace to, to follow through on it. Let's pray. Lord, these are sobering and challenging reminders from your word. And we could rightly ask, okay, so how do I do that moment by moment, day by day? And those questions need to be answered. But Lord, we first need you to get our hearts in the right place. And for some reason, things that we can understand in other aspects of our life seem to escape us in that 24-7 lifetime commitment of the marriage covenant. So I pray for my brothers. And our sons thanking you, O Lord, that faithful marriage, successful marriage, lifelong marriage is not only a possibility, but it is your promise to your people. And we thank you for our fathers in the faith, some of whom still have their wives at their sides, who are still enthusiastically married, and who are proximate goals, reference points that we can orient ourselves to as we 
in perhaps not very many fewer years, but some of us just beginning can pursue. But most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for what Paul tells us, reminds us about the way Jesus loved his bride and gave himself up for her, not only that he might purify her from all her pollution in sin, but also then to bring her to the fullness of her glory. May we love our wives that way so that our leadership will be such a blessing to them that they will be glad every day that you brought us into their lives. Oh, we need you so desperately, Lord Jesus. We need fresh outpourings of your Spirit moment by moment, day by day. And we admit that we don't have it because so often we don't ask. We just make adjustments. We just do what seems right in our own eyes, and we fail again and again and again. Please forgive us and change us, O oh God, that we might see the fruit of your blessing in our life and in our relationship with our wives to the glory and praise of your great name. Amen.